Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is high in the skies. Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed with commentary by Guess McCall. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the October 4th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. On this day, in 1957, the Soviet Union inaugurated the Space Age with its launch of Sputnik, the world's first artificial satellite. Also on this day in 1864, the New Orleans Tribune, first black daily newspaper, was founded by Dr. Louis C. Rodinez. The newspaper, published in both English and French, started as a tri-weekly, but soon became an influential daily. This also in the same year that the National Black Convention met in Syracuse, New York. There is a lot to go over and a worldwide wicked web to proceed, a big picture to paint. We'll be here connecting the dots with you for the next two hours. At some point, I might even share some surprising personal history. Our abolitionist in profile is Mumbet, a.k.a. Elizabeth Friedman. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry of October 16, 1859. Our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Baltimore's Lamar Johnson. He walked free September 19th after serving 13 years in prison for a first-degree murder he did not commit. Have a question or a comment? You can call us toll-free, USA, at one 510 9025 You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? I, I know you don't want to talk too much, so I'm just giving my hellos and how you been this week out of the way. Hey, what's going on, Max and, and everybody? Um, uh, uh, <laughs> it's just like that, man. Um, I'm just I'm just not stable this week, man. So, But I'm, I'm doing better than most. Um, I was reading some of those stories that you guys plan to share tonight, and one in particular, I was like, man, the one about the chicken plant, 
that Otis yes. uh, pulled up, I was like, and, and these are, are Christians, but, you know, so were some of those 1865 slavers, too. So, yeah, man, but, um, so I'm doing better than most, but I, I'm just going through a thing right now. I hear that, brother. Um, you know, I, I do want to say something in regards to just what recently happened in Vegas and uh, with the mass killings out there. Uh, my heart goes out to the victims and the people who were subject to this, uh, what seems to be insanity. Uh, indeed, just want to say that. But, you know, to date, from what I understand, 784 people have been killed by police in the United States. And all week long, I've been hearing the of the gunshots on the media as they played it in loops behind their conversations, like some kind of hypnotic effect, you know, just crazy. But I bet you, if you played all the gunshots of the 784 people who have been killed by police in the United States sequentially, one after the other, it would sound a lot worse. Sometimes I wonder what what it takes for people to recognize things. I mean, does it all have to happen at once, or can it happen over time for you still to be able to see it? Anyway, uh, what's happening, Brother Otis? You, you here with us today, right? Oh, yes, man. I'm telling you, I'm feeling like you are. Rat-a-tat-tat. They, they're playing it and playing it, keeping us distracted from the thing about slavery. Trying to keep us distracted. I, I see St. Louis. I see Columbus. People are waking up to this abolitionist thing. The article I'm sharing actually came from a young lady that I've been following that does, goes all to Syria and everywhere, and I've been back and forth with her about the problems here in the United States, and she actually sent me this article. So people are waking up all over all over this planet. We're going to get it done. Yes, sir. And I'm I'm looking forward to you uh, talking about this in detail during the evening, man. It's been a busy week for me uh, as well. I did something that I love to talk to the kids, you know what I mean? And I hate to say kids, but the young adults like high school and grammar school. And I can explain this, what we talk about here every week to grammar schoolers, and I have done it. But I had the opportunity to speak with some high schoolers out in Ohio. Uh, just this past 29th, I think it was, that it occurred. And uh, it was really nice. It was a segment of the population that may not be affected in the ways that others are uh, out there. And that was good to be able to speak to them too and give them a different perspective. Um, We talked about the 13th Amendment because they viewed uh, the film by Ava DuVernay, 13th. And uh, then they Skyped me in for a discussion about the film. And the kids had good questions and they were very much aware of some of these things. But there was times where things were kind of stereotypical or you could hear the reflection of parents speaking through them. You know, like often our young people will adopt the ideologies of those around them without really understanding them. And you could hear that at certain times. I gave them some advice, uh, just three primary pieces of advice before it was all said and done. That was one, learn what race and racism really are by reading some books on the subject. Don't go to Webster's Dictionary, man, or Wiki. Read some books on it. There is some serious issues that you, I mean, serious books you can read about this to get a better understanding. Because if you understand the origins of race and racism, it changes your whole perspective and potentially your life if you had a false perspective prior to that. And then I also suggested that they study logical fallacies. And I think that's one of the most important pieces of uh, advice I could give any young people or anybody, period, really, is study logical fallacies. The more of them you know, the 
better it is for you to be able to recognize reality. And you can also recognize when people are using these fallacies on you, as well as avoiding using them unwittingly yourself on others. And logical fallacies include things like ad hominem attacks, where, you know, you attack the man rather than the argument. So somebody would say something like, you can't believe all of those guys. They all come from the West End. That's ad hominem attack you're associating. And then, you know, instead of addressing the argument, you're demonizing the person. And that's what racism is a lot. Uh, it's an ad hominem attack. And the last thing I, I suggested to them, because they spend a lot of money, teenagers, 16, 17, 18 years old, is to be wary of where their dollars are going. They put a lot of money into cell phones and music and fast foods and things like that. And I gave them a list of uh, industries and companies that use prison slave labor so they can avoid spending their money there. Uh, some that still use it or and some that have used it. But in any case, that's a way of speaking through their spending power. So it was really eye-opening for them and for myself. I learned a few things from them as well. Uh, one of the students at the last class, because I taught four classes, at the end of the, the last class asked me what other freedoms I would like to see for prisoners. And that was something I was able to easily answer right off the top. And that's the right to vote. I really think that they should have never lost the right to vote uh, through conviction of felonies. Um, it's a part of the oppression that's going on to keep people in minority silent through their voting. And uh, as I explained last week on the program, you know, politicians don't listen to prisoners because prisoners ain't voting. You know what I mean? But if they did, then the politicians would listen, and then the talking heads, sycophants that they have following them would start talking about it, and more people, uh, like the average listener or reader, would have some kind of compassion for what's going on. Because right now, it's out of sight, out of mind, because nobody's talking about what's happening to them. And when they talk, that's often censored, as we've seen uh, on at least two major occasions. One, the national prison labor work strike where mass media completely avoided the subject and the same thing with the august 19th march on washington the largest gathering of slavery abolitionists in u.s history across 20 different cities man and also in washington dc one just right across the street from the white house and they never mentioned it hardly at all it was all independent media that was talking about it. there you go uh want to chime in on anything there otis Oh, no, Max, I'm with you. I got some good news to uh, share, though. You know, with all this communication and interactive interaction we've been having with certain organizations, uh, two of them have really stepped up now. And uh, one of them I think I spoke about last week, which is the Human Rights Network, which is you know putting together a division dedicated to the 13th Amendment. The other one is the ACLU. You know, we've been calling them out now for a few years. And uh, we've worked with them now a few times. They were at the Million for Prisoners Human Rights March, one of the only organizations of their type who represented there and spoke at the march as well in other places. And today they contacted me about coming out to Ohio to do an event with the ACLU and informed me that they are now putting this on their agenda of things to address and take very seriously the 13th Amendment. So with the ACLU now on board, Things are starting to look up. I, I like the sound of that. You there? Yes, I'm here. Feel free to chime in. Scotty's going to take it easy today. We'll do most of the talking. So it's you and me, Otis. 
Oh, no, I'm great. Unless I'm telling you, I'm, Max, I'm telling you, I'm watching it grow. People that have been sending me personal messages chastising me because, you know, I'm constantly pumping you guys and, and pumping the message. And I've been getting people, like I said, I to a couple of uh, journalists that operate out of Germany, expatriates, American citizens, and they've been sending me a lot of information too, and they're finally putting it on their agenda abroad, even in Germany. So right. it's catching on. I'm loving it. Yeah, that's that's good. It, it looks good because, you know, the more uh, people just, just take a look at it, like the organizations like the ACLU, but the NAACP knows about this too. They can do the same thing. So can the Con Congressional Black Caucus. So can any organization that gives a damn about human rights. Just take a simple look at the 13th Amendment. Start counting heads in the prisons. Start following the money. You all the reports, all the information you could possibly want is there available for you, but you just have to be willing to take that first step and consider an argument. And what's that argument? That A, this is not mass incarceration or any iteration thereof. It is slavery and human trafficking. Slavery allowed through the 13th Amendment, uh, exception clause of our U.S. Constitution, and also through state constitutions across the nation. At least two dozen of them have exception clauses in their state constitution. So it's allowed through that. And they call it slavery. They don't call it something like slavery. They don't call it in the constitution mental slavery. It says slavery and indentured servitude. But, you know, that right there is a, is a level of betrayal that most people are unwilling to even consider. Like, really? Slavery? Yes. An example that I always uh, use is that prison that they have out there in Hawaii, uh, actually not in Hawaii, in Arizona, and in Eloy, where only Hawaiians are housed in a for-profit private prison. So if you're arrested in Hawaii, they ship you across the ocean to Arizona to be in a prison with the rest of your people there. That's crazy, I think, and that's human trafficking. And they do the same thing in states like Vermont, where Vermont's sending its prisoners out to Michigan, and uh, Washington, D.C. is sending its prisoners out to other states as far as Texas. And it's gotten to the point now where it's become such an exploitative practice. Not only is it adopted globally in other nations, but here in the United States, it's just, just gone completely out of control to the point where now, uh, I'm reading reports, and you'll, you'll see them in the planning stage there, these telecommunication companies have decided working with the prisons that you can't even visit your loved ones now. So it don't matter where they're in the country. What they're going to do now is sell their images back to you. So you can talk to them for like $15 for 10 minutes or something like that. They rake in the money by selling your images of your loved ones to you. And you're a captive audience, basically. It's the only way you're going to ever see them. And it takes a lot of that personal you know, connection to life and family and environment away from those people. But this is just how they're exploiting us now. Every aspect is exploitation and money-making. And you have prisons that are following market values. Yes, well, you're, you're right. It's how to monetize it. And under the guise, I, you're talking about that. I saw a couple of articles earlier on talking about how it uh, makes the prisons more secure because you eliminate having to worry about visitors. So they're marketing it to the guise of saving money when in fact what they're trying to do is extract more wealth because like you said, they turn it into telecommunications. 
you chit-chatting with somebody that you know is locked in a cage is supposed to be the same as talking to your loved one when they're sitting in a hotel room. That's not going to work. Right, right. It's not the same. They're not free. I'm going to read a little bit of this uh, thing that came, this article that came from the New Orleans Advocate, okay? And it's titled, Jefferson Parish's Jail Touts New Video Visitation Program but ban on in-person visits concern inmate advocates. Inmates at the Jefferson Parish Correctional Center in Gretna will no longer be able to receive in-person visits from relatives and friends beginning October 10th, 2017, when the facility will begin a video visitations program similar to the one put in place in New Orleans lockup a couple of years ago. Newly installed Jefferson Parish Sheriff Joseph Lapinto said Wednesday that one major benefit of eliminating in-person visits in the jail is ending the possibilities of visitors giving contraband to inmates. I'm pausing the article there just to mention that, you know, the guards are running the rackets in the prisons. Don't get it twisted. The guards are running the rackets in the prisons, not the, the people. But anyway, but some lawyers who work with people accused of crimes countering that face-to-face visitation make it easier for inmates to rejoin their loved ones lives after their release and a video only model complicates that it is becoming more common for correctional facilities across the country to use video technology similar to skype to let inmates communicate with loved ones though it is less common for jails to do away with all in-person visits as a result um, you can read the rest of it at New Abolitionist Radio, and we have all our stories in a post uh, from the New Abolitionist Radio's planning page. Well, we just put all these things together so you can go and take a look in case we miss anything in particular or you want to read something further in detail and research it. But um, what do you think there, Otis? Well, uh, back to the very same thing. They're taking away all interpersonal contact. Basically, it's a form of, of mental torture. It's when you know you're locked away and you can't even have the basic contact with a loved one. That's part of psychological warfare. It's it's not much different than being a war prisoner. It's it's slavery, and it, the bottom line is it's all about extracting wealth. The, pretty much the article that we're bringing up later on in the program touches on that. They use every kind of guise they can to play on some type of morality. When you break it all down, it ends up being depriving you of your civil and human rights. Sooner or later, we're going to end up in some kind of international court behind this because I think when the pressure mounts, there's going to be enough energy to take it outside of the USA to get it done. Human rights courts and and like the young lady that came on a couple of weeks ago talking about how she's trying to get it into what is a court of... um, I can't even remember the exact name of the organization, but it's basically a human rights commission international. The, the momentum is growing. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a jail doing this. So you're talking about people who have not been convicted of anything. These are people who are innocent until proven guilty that you're in a jail. You might be in there for three years like Khalif Browder or 10 years like the other brother we talked about uh, not too long ago. But it's still innocent until proven guilty. So now you're being exploited <laughs> like you are guilty right off the bat. It didn't want, they're not even waiting for the conviction. Let's get our exploitations on right now. And if this, this becomes commonplace, I mean, they could easily place all prisoners on some island or something like that, you know, and be like, so? So what? They're on an island in the middle of nowhere, with Rikers Island or out in the middle of the ocean or on some abandoned 
oil rig. Does it matter? You can video conference them anytime you feel like it. Only for 20 minutes at $13. That's what it says in the uh, thing here, that it's a 20-minute session costs $13. You remember on this program, I told you that was why I stopped communicating with my son uh, in person like that, because they told me that would be the only way that I would be able to do it. And I said, hell no. Uh, I refuse to allow you to not only hold my son hostage, but then to sell me back his image. No. Right, to extort money from you with an image so you have no way of personal contact to, to ask him how is he doing, to lay eyes on him and know what's going on. Right, right. You know, I know people personally who have spent hundreds of dollars, and still do, per month, just to communicate with their loved ones. And that is some of the most exploitative stuff you can imagine when they're barely making it and they're spending their rent money and their heat money and their electric money and whatever money they got just to be able to communicate with their loved ones and it's costing them hundreds of dollars every month. And you know, what did the daughters, what was the daughter's crime? What was the mother's crime? What was the father's crime? Why are they suffering for this, you know? But that's only because it's like kidnapping, dude. You have control of their loved ones' lives. Like, literally. It's life or death. Captive customers. So, um, I think think you're going to see a lot more momentum because I don't know if you noticed, but like I said, the article that's coming up, this is primarily all white. Caucasians. They're all poor whites that have been caught up in this particular situation at the chicken farm. So, and I got one of my friends really into it because before it was all about what crime did they commit. Once they found this article and found out it's not necessarily what crime they commit, it's what crooked judge they go in front of. Yes. Yes, what crooked judge. They could end up in front of those two judges like they had in Pennsylvania with the kids for cash scandal that was working with that uh, uh, developer Merkel could end up in front of a couple yeah. of them and, and it's possible as we've explained on this program right now uh, just about anybody can own stocks in private prisons through a shell company like the Vanguard group or such and uh, not be held accountable for conflict of, of interest like the attorney general right now Jeff Session actually owns stocks in the construction of private prisons it's a small amount of money but there's nothing stopping him there's nothing stopping the president the vice president senators congressmen from personally profiting on how many people are in prison and then having that affect their lawmaking decisions um, and you well, know exactly. the, go ahead yeah uh-huh. you you put up Charles an investment group that is peddling stocks and shares in private prisons. So these multimillionaires have accounts that we know nothing about, so you can't really tell how deeply involved they are in it, but you know that they're changing the laws to accommodate the people, so there's... Yes, yes. I I was first exposed to that with the um, racketeering charges that were placed upon the then sitting Vice President Dick Cheney and the then sitting Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, who were both uh, involved in a for-profit prison industry with uh, tens of millions, over $100 million between the two of them, of their own money invested in this thing called the Vanguard Group, who was investing in private prisons at the time. And it was affecting 
their decision making, not only in the White House, but also in the Justice Department, because they were literally benefiting financially off of the laws that they were and policies that they were drafting, creating and putting into play. That is a, a criminal act, man. And that's why they were being charged with racketeering. So I've been looking forward to what you want to uh, share with us today. So I'm, we know what I want to do is uh, let's go ahead and get into your story today. And uh, I'm going to sit back and listen, man, because I want to learn some things about this chicken farm that's going on right now um, and hear what, you, what you've what you uncovered. Because I see you had like 24 photos of certain comments that were being made. But in any case, uh, yes. if you have it ready. I wasn't sure how deep you wanted to get into it, but I'm going to tell you, it's an amalgamation of all that's going on, what you're talking about. These things are, are so complex until the average person won't get it. Apparently, the people that studied this because of satellite uh, attachments from 2013, so the group revealed that did this study took almost three years to accumulate this information under the Freedom of Information Act, and it's going to blow your mind how many, how many corporations are involved with it and how actually it looks like they helped to create this pool of captured labor. It's called All Work, No Pay. Men sent to Christian alcoholics and addicts in recovery, better known here, work full-time at chicken processing plants. The hours are long, the conditions are brutal, and the program keeps all the wages. The worst day of Brad McGahee's life was the day a judge decided to spare him from prison. McGahee was 23 with dreams of making it big in the rodeo, maybe starring in his own reality TV show. With a 1.5 GPA, he'd barely graduated from high school. He had two kids and a mounting child support debt. Then he got busted for buying a stolen horse trailer, fell behind on court fines, and blew off his probation officer. Standing in a tiny panel courtroom in rural Oklahoma in 2010, he faced one year in state prison. The judge had another plan. You need to learn a work ethic, the judge told him. I'm sending you to care. Mahaney had heard of Christian alcoholics and addicts in recovery. People called it the chicken farm, a rural retreat where defendants stayed for a year, got addiction treatment, learned how to live more productive lives. Most were sent there by courts from across Oklahoma and neighboring states, part of the nationwide push to keep nonviolent offenders out of prison. Now my computer wants to try to lock up. Aside from the daily, yeah, aside from the, it's trying to mess up on me. Okay, aside from the daily cams of Dr. Pepper, McGahee wasn't addicted to anything. The judge knew that, but the chicken farm sounded like better than prison. A few weeks later, McGahee stood in front of a speeding conveyor belt inside a frigid poultry plant, pulling guts and stray feathers from slaughtered chickens, destined for major fast food restaurants and grocery stores. There wasn't much substance abuse treatment at care. Uh, Otis, did you just say, let let me read that quote again for you so people can be clear on what was happening here. McKay stood in front of a speeding conveyor belt inside a frigid poultry plant, pulling guts and stray feathers from slaughtered chickens destined for major fast food restaurants and grocery stores. This was a commercial yes. industry <laughs> that they're talking about. Go ahead, yes. brother. How it, 
There wasn't much substance abuse treatment at CARE. It was mostly factory work for one of America's top poultry companies. If McGahee got hurt or worked too slowly, his bosses threatened him with prison. And he worked for free. CARE pocketed the pay. It was a slave camp, McGahee said. I can't believe court sent me there. But soon it would get worse. Across the country, judges increasingly are sending defendants to rehab instead of prison or jail. These diversion courts have become the bedrock of criminal justice reform, aiming to transform lives and ease overcrowded prisons. Remember that key word we've been talking about? You can't reform slavery? Right. But in the rush to spare people from prison, some judges are steering defendants into rehabs that are little more than lucrative work camps for private industry. An investigation by Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting has found. The programs promise freedom from addiction. Instead, they've turned thousands of men and women into indentured servants. The beneficiaries of these programs span the country from Fortune 500 companies to factories and local businesses. The defendants work at Coca-Cola bottling plants in Oklahoma, construction firm in Alabama, and a nursing home in North Carolina. Perhaps no rehab better exemplifies this alliance to big business than care, allegiance to big business than care. It started in 2007 by chicken company executives struggling to find workers. By forming a Christian rehab, they could supply plants with a cheap and captive labor force while helping men overcome their addictions. No, they didn't use God. (laughs) Oh, yes. Get, Get that. At CARE, about 200 men live on a sprawling, grassy compound in northeastern Oklahoma. Most work full-time at Simmons Food Incorporated, a company with annual revenue of $1.4 billion. You know, before you go further, let me point out something. $1.4 billion is also the annual income, and last report, by the GEO Group and also uh, around the same thing for CCA. So this single company, Simmons Food Incorporated, is making as much profit as the two uh, of the largest private for-profit prison companies in the world. Oh, it gets worse. This is just Simmons Food that's making $1.4 billion. Yep. Watch the arms of revenue that trickle in. They slaughter and process chickens for some of America's largest retailers and restaurants including Walmart, KFC, Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. They also make pet food for PetSmart and Rachel Ray's Nutrish brand. So they're not only making food for humans, they make some of the most, what do they call this stuff? Uh, They have a name for it. Uh, Celebrity dog foods, the top of the line choice. These are the people, PetSmart and Rachel Ray are top-of-the-line brands that celebrities feed their dogs. It's supposed to be the quality of human food, but it gets worse. Chicken processing plants are notoriously dangerous and understaffed. The hours are long, the pay is low, conditions are brutal. Men in the care program said their hands became gnarled after days spent hanging thousands of chickens from metal shackles. One man said he was burned with acid while hosing down a trailer. Others were maimed by machines and contracted serious bacterial infections. Those who were hurt could no longer work, often were kicked out of care, sent to prison. 
Court records show most men work through the pain, fearing the same fate. They work you to death. They work you every single day, say Nat Turner, who graduated from CARE in 2015. Get the name, Nat Turner? Nate Turner, I think it says. But Nate, still, yeah, oh, okay. I saw that too. It's, it's a work camp. They know people are desperate to get out of jail. They do whatever they can do to stay out of prison. To unearth the story, revealed interviews scores of former participants and employees, court officials and judges, and reviewed hundreds of pages of court documents, tax filings, and working, workers' compensation records. At some rehabs, defendants got to keep their pay. At CARE and many others, they did not. Do you know about a work-based rehab program? They're asking if you know about it, help because there's ongoing investigation. Legal experts said forcing defendants to work for free might violate their constitutional rights. Get that? Might? The 13th Amendment bans slavery and involuntary servitude in the United States, except as punishment for convicts. That's why prison labor programs are legal. But many defendants sent to programs such as CARE have not yet been convicted of crimes. And some, later, have their cases dismissed. So you're back to the same dichotomy you were talking about. Some of these people are sent into a diversion program, never been convicted, but still treated like slaves, like slaves, as though they were convicted. You've got to be kidding me, said Noah Zatz, a professor specializing in labor law at UCLA, when presented with Reveal's finding. That's a very strong 13th Amendment violation case. Care has become indispensable to the criminal justice system even though judges appear to be violating Oklahoma's drug court law by using it in some cases according to the law's authors. There's the people who created the law are saying it's illegal. Drug courts in Oklahoma are required to send defendants for treatment at certified programs with trained counselors and state oversight. CARE is uncertified. Only one of its three counselors is licensed and no state agency regulates it. The program mainly relies on faith, and work to treat addiction. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead to a section that it gets into it. The American Civil Liberties Union of Oklahoma is now considering legal action in response to Reveal's reporting. They're now considering it. Now, this has been going on since 2007, and only after a private investigating agency, a news organization, digs up this, now they're considering it you know they've had to, had to have complaints if this started in 2007. That's a decade ago. About 280 men are sent to care each year by courts throughout Oklahoma, as well as Arkansas, Texas, and Missouri. Instead of paychecks, the men get bunk beds, meals, and alcoholics and anonymous and narcotics anonymous meetings. If there's time between work shifts, they can meet with a counselor or attend classes on anger management and parenting. Weekly Bible study is mandatory for the first four months or so. Oh, for the first four months, so is church. Most days revolve around work. Money is an obstacle for so many of these men, said Janet Wilkerson, CARE's founder and CEO. We're not going to charge them to come here, but they're going to have to work. That's a part of recovery. Getting up like you and I do every day and going to a job. The program has become an invaluable labor source over the years for Simmons Foods. Repeatedly has laid off paid employees while expanding its use of care. 
Simmons now is so reliant on the program for some shifts that the plants likely would shut down if the men didn't show up, according to former staff members and plant supervisors. But Donnie Epp, a spokesman, spokesman for Simmons Foods, said the company does not depend on care to, file a labor to fill a labor shortage. It's about building relationships with our community, supporting the opportunity to help people become productive citizens. Well, they got some cool spokesmen out there. The arrangement also has paid off for care. In seven years, the program brought in more than $11 million in revenue, according to tax filings. So $1.4 billion by Simmons, but care itself in the last seven years has brought in $11 million. Later on in the program, in this article, it tells you how they made that $11 million. They came up with a hell of an idea, said Parker Grindstaff, who graduated earlier this year. They're making a killing off of us. Hey, Otis. You want to say something? Yeah. Yes. This is a huge, uh, this is a big, really big article. Uh, if we could just kind of condense some of it and leave some of it for the readers. That's thing. what I was getting ready to say. Yeah. I, I'm going to go to a part that will tell you, I'm going to get to what Wilkerson is. Wilkerson is a lady who came up with this idea after talk, I'll give you a summation. She came up with this idea after running into a gentleman who had been in trouble with the law. So it says Wilkinson had connections to make it happen. What she wanted to make happen? The economics made sense. The chicken plants needed workers and Jones's program was beginning to bring in revenue of more than $2 million a year. So one of the guys who was a prisoner actually came up with this idea. She took it on because she had connections. Wilkerson had the connections to make it happen. In addition to working in human resources at Peterson Farms, she also moonlighted as a spokesman for Simmons Food and other top poultry companies. What? Wilkerson enlisted her assistant and another poultry executive and brought Jones along as a $250,000 a year consultant. So that tells you right there. People can go to this article and they will be shocked. But I want to read one other quote from the judge involved in this once she was confronted. The judge actually had the nerve to say, I'm trying to find it quickly. Okay, one of the gentlemen who graduated said he went to basic training at 16 as an army ranger in school. And he said it wasn't as hard as care, mentally or physically. I still need to find uh, this section. You can talk for a minute. You're, looking at the part, it. you're probably looking at the, for the part that I'm looking at right now, maybe, where it says, tell us your story. And it says, legal experts said forcing defendants to work for free might violate the constitutional rights. Did you read that part yet? Yeah, I got that. I want to find the part where the judge, there's a judge in here that so blatantly said, that's why I broke it up on my page but my computer's slowing down. Yeah, he says uh, the 13th Amendment bans, bans slavery and involuntary servitude in the United States, <clears throat> except as punishment for convicts. That's why prison labor programs are legal. But many defendants sent to programs such as CARE have not yet been convicted of crimes, and some have had their cases dismissed. Yeah, I think you did mention that one. That's pretty yeah. amazing, man, considering you're not even guilty of anything and you're being enslaved now. So they don't even need to prosecute you. The 13th Amendment says convicted, <laughs> right? But you're not even being convicted here. Some people are having their cases dismissed after they've been forced into a slave labor camp. When you're actually living on the slave labor camp, 
working for free for corporations that are selling their goods and services on the international market, making as much money annually just for one company as the largest prison for-profit prison company in the nation or in the world is making per year. That's that's freaking outrageous, man. They say that the Civil Liberties Union of Oklahoma is considering legal action in response to Reveal's reporting. Shout out to Reveal for bringing this out in depth like this. Researchers and people who want to know need, really need to go and look at this in detail. He's naming names and dates and everything. I, I want to see you, how far this goes. i tell you another about a two minutes here. Drug yes. court defendants have waited up to nine months for a bed in a residential treatment facility, meanwhile relapsing or languishing in jail. As a result, some courts turn to uncertified programs such as CARE, even though it might violate the law according to the law's authors. These are the people who wrote the law in, our, our, in, in Oklahoma. That is insanity going to see, former state senator Dick Wilkerson said when told of Reveal's findings. He is not related to the, the care finder, Wilkerson, but, but he's from Oklahoma. That's illegal. They can't do that. That is a law, and it has to be followed. In Potoka County, Judge Thomas Landis sometimes uses care in place of certified retreatment. He said there's never a wait list, and it costs the court and state nothing. We tried to get residential treatment programs down here, but we never could really pull it off, he said. So recovery programs kind of fit that niche. Other judges said they were unaware of the law or had found ways around it. Tulsa's drug court, which sends the most defendants to care, said the law permits judges to use uncertified programs as long as it's not for treatment. But the referral is to assist the participants in developing good skills, life skills, work ethics, and personal care skills, said Vicki Cox, the court administrator. Participants are not sent to care for drug or alcohol. But Reveal found that Tulsa's drug court staff repeatedly declared care as a treatment in the records. But Cox dismissed that as record-keeping error. So it is, the, the ACL, but actually, what I was going to inject is, you would think the Department of Justice, who actually oversees these state courts, by federal mandate, should be should have stepped in. This has been going on for a decade in this one place, and you know American business. If it's happening in Oklahoma and surrounding states, there's a network of people doing the same thing all across this continent. Yes, this is not the only racket. I was asked by the students as well from Ohio, what did that I think was the next stage of slavery and I pointed this out saying that this is where they're going to move into the aftercare services and mental health treatment where you know services and things like this and uh, just look how corrupt it is there's one other part that you, I don't think you read where it said this guy named Brandon Spurgeon was working in the chicken plant one night in 2014 and a metal yes. board crashed down on his head it damaged his spine and left him with chronic pain and according to uh, according to medical records, and care filed for workers' compensation on his behalf, took the forty five hundred in insurance pay payments, and never gave him nothing. So here he is working for free from a jail where he hasn't been convicted, and where he has to live on a slave camp. He gets hurt, and they probably got his life insured too. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do, because there's likely been some deaths there. But if they file for working compensation on behalf of this enslaved person and then kept the money. 
Wow. I'm telling you, Max, it's all connected. Remember, we, you talked about Alabama with the black guy that went to jail because he was paying bribes to get the medicine contract for the prisoners and wasn't wasn't providing the services but was paying over $100,000 a year to get the contract. So I'm telling you, this model is being used all over. The, another thing that comes to mind, Chris Christie changed some laws in New Jersey. I'm going to have to look up the article, but I remember... Eminent domain laws. Yeah, not only changed the eminent domain laws to build the prisons, but also changed the laws to be able to operate this new juvenile system that they're putting in in New, in, in New Jersey. Yes, one of our, our listeners and uh, supporters, Maurice out from Missouri, was uh, he was in the military in Vietnam, one of the founders of CEC, uh, Community Education Centers, which is a juvenile detention facility, it was one of the largest in the in the world at one point. And he has since passed away. But yeah, he explained to me then. Uh, Maurice told me about how this man had thought he was trying to do something right, and then it was taken over by the government, basically Chris Christie and them, and uh, pushed into a more nefarious purpose. So they started using these halfway houses for kids as money making ventures, including using eminent domain laws in New Jersey to be able to put those things all over the state. It got so uh, plentiful that eventually I ended up visiting a CEC location in South Carolina. It had expanded that far. That's it. Exactly. They they do the same thing in this business that they do in anything else franchise. That's yeah. basically what they're doing. The business model worked, they expanded. They expanded. There's no such thing reforming it. And you know how they like to roll? It's better to seek forgiveness than permission. So if, even if it's illegal, they'll do it until they get fined for doing it. And then they'll pay a small portion of their overall profit as a fine and move on to the next uh, venture. But that's what happened with the company out in Pennsylvania. Uh, the last that we heard of that whole case was um, the original developer, Merkel, was facing a year in jail. I think he got out of that. And the corporation that was uh, behind it all was fined $80 million, but they made nearly a billion dollars in profit on sending children into prisons as uh, physical slaves, where they would own them like property and made money just because they held their bodies in captivity. And and that's the key with today's prison system, and that's where they're trying to move from, but it's difficult for them. The key for them, the brunt of the money that they get comes from you, the taxpayer, because all they have to do is capture you and put your body in a cell. You don't have to work. The work is gravy. The exploitation is all extra. That's all cumulative. But the most money that they get comes just by putting you in a cell. So if you laid there 24 hours a day and never did nothing, you would still generate in New York State over 90, well, actually New York State is $160,000 a year just for being there. If you're a teenager, you could lay in a cell 24 hours a day, seven days a week, never do a, a lick of work, like Khalif Browder did, be in solitary confinement and still be worth $350,000 a year. Well, I can tell you, as an aside, I've got to find a way to get down there and spend five to seven days with Scotty to brush up on my computer skills because I want to come up with a, a way to start connecting these big dots in a format that people can understand because it, it once people actually see how we're being manipulated and and slaves are actually the new elite labor force in this country. We don't have, we have a high unemployment rate, 
because they're not trying to hire free citizens. They have a captive army of indentured servants or slaves. And it doesn't matter about your skin color. All that matters is they can get you legally under the thumb of a judge and send you off to work. Well, it does matter about your skin color to a very large degree. I mean, <clears throat> just put it in perspective, you know, uh, blacks and browns don't own a lot of wealth in this country. Uh, we do own a lot of the poverty. <clears throat> so it's very likely that you'll find us in those conditions uh, to a very large degree in dominating homelessness or poverty uh, or near poverty. So that becomes a racial aspect. <clears throat> and how do they get to that point? Then you have to start going back to redlining and the banking frauds and all of the different things that were put into place to literally disempower African-Americans and, and minorities, even the voting processes, to push them in these certain areas and certain conditions and constantly, generation after generation, stealing not only their wealth, but their, uh, their brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, sisters, and daughters physically stealing them from their communities uh, and kidnapping them. Yes, and well, the kind of angle I'm looking at is you figure blacks are 13% of this population. We know that they incarcerate us at much higher rates. But the cancer and the profitability of this system has actually been moved out to just what this article says. Rural towns across this country away from large populations, so white people really don't even realize what magnitude is happening to their poor people. They think what they see on TV is what the prison system is all about. But you understand that this article plainly says the bulk of these people are white yes. or males and if one company makes $1.4 million I mean, yeah, $1.4 billion and then you have after Simmons did this model, they said later Crystal Lake Farms and Tyson Foods signed on. So that, that uh, that's an industry that's normally fighting each other over wages so they can keep a productive workforce. They've actually come together and working toward building this one. As a matter well, of fact, this... in the article, it tells you the business model is so good so they're actually building at this one site in Oklahoma, they're building their fourth uh, warehouse for, for bunk beds are new, so they they're expanded. They're not trying to cut back. Yeah, these are the, those plant the new plantation. Uh, but you know, this is not new because they've been doing this with Idaho potatoes. They've been doing it with uh, Prism Blues, and they've been doing it with a variety of uh, mer manufacturers and merchandise organizations, uh, companies, and. Even AT&T with their call centers. They've been doing this in different industries that are making billions and billions of dollars. And just to put it in perspective, on a global level, 37 states in the United States and its territories, 37 of them, have a higher rate of incarceration than any other nation in the world, on Earth. 37 states, just the states and uh, territories, have a higher incarceration rate. Uh, Cuba finally gets into the play somewhere after the 37th. Cuba. One other thing I want to bring up, Max. Do you realize when they're doing this business model, they've actually eliminated having to have a cage because they're building dormitories and having 
a nonprofit or a religious organization house these people and no guards. So now they have so they they've really amped up the process by moving it to rural areas, knowing that these people don't want to go to jail. So you got a captive audience with no prison guards, no insurance, no workman's comp, no FICA, and stealing their wages and unemployment benefits or workman's comp benefits if they have any. This is all, it, 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 it blew my mind when I started reading through it. They're taking black people that are in a large major city and letting them out of jail with or what electronic collars and monitoring devices and parole, and they're taking another captive audience and moving it out into rural America and putting it together, producing all of the quote cheap food and products that we're buying from Walmart, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Popeyes, you name it. It is it's insane. I think when people start realizing the magnitude of this. Abolition is going to be on the forefront big in 2018. I don't think it's going to take more than another 180 days for this to be get bigger and bigger. Well, you know, <clears throat> we're coming up on our break in about five minutes, but before that, I want to cover a story and then play a video after the break uh, that ties all of this into this. One of the things we're hearing a lot of right now is about the disrespect of the American flag, you know? And I saw recently a video where Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee took a knee in support of NFL players. And she said she stands against racism in Trump. While doing so, she stated, I kneel because the flag is a symbol for freedom. So the flag is a symbol for freedom. And you're on your knees in support of that, right? Does it matter that the flag is made by women prisoners working for pennies in a prison or that the flag is then sold worldwide for profit while these enslaved women get barely enough to, from their labors to buy toothpaste? People only see or believe what they want to see or believe. And somewhere in that mix, there's got to be room for some truth. So we are sharing one of the articles in regards to how our American flag is being made by prisoners who are working for slave labor wages and have been for many years. So if the flag is a symbol of freedom and it's made by slaves, then it's not a symbol for freedom at all. It's a symbol for slavery. You can't have both of those in your world view at the same time. You can't have legalized slavery and freedom. You can't say the flag represents freedom while people who are enslaved are making it. That's the same type of stupid-ass logic we used in the 1800s to justify everything we were doing then. So that article is available. It's called Notes from the Cut, an American Prison, and it's one of several articles on that particular thing. Uh, the other thing is, uh, there's another story. Pull it up here. Just give me I, sent her, I sent her on Twitter that article and tagged it to the New Abolitionist Radio. <laughs> Did you? Yes. Yeah. To account. There's a video in here that, uh, Scotty, if you're listening, brother, I want to try to get you played out. Just got to take a second to find it here. And it was a discussion from Learn Liberty. Here, I have it now. Uh, Learn Liberty. I want to play that. And then I want to talk a little bit about what he said in it and the things that he uh, put together. So it's the video from Learn Liberty, Scotty Reed. I'm putting it on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page as well now, right at the top, so you have easy access to it. 
Uh, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and take our break a couple minutes earlier, and when we come back, just go ahead and play that, and then we'll discuss it afterwards. All right, Scotty? Hopefully I'm not talking into the wind. Scotty Reed, you there, bro? Oh, yes, yes, I'm here. We still had like five minutes to go, but uh, if you want to take it yeah. early, I'll go ahead and do that. Yeah, we'll take the early break, and then we'll play this video upon return, and then we're going to discuss it afterwards. And You're listening where, to New Abolitionist Radio here on the BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com, and we're talking about what we always talk about, modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Be right back after these messages. <laughs> Providing new black media for the masses. And we are back. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. I believe, Max, you might have yourself muted. Yeah, I was. I thought you were just going to go ahead right into this video, racial inequity inequality in the criminal justice system. Yes. So just go ahead and put that on. Yes, I, we'll I, I don't that. have the video yet. I, I didn't hear the part oh. about the video, so I, I'm trying it's, to find it's it. It's the first one on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page. Okay. So I put it there for you to be able to easily find it. Okay. And if you want to uh, set it up again as I pull it up. Um, yeah, it's basically, it kind of brings together what we were just talking about, or what's going on, uh, you know, bringing all these pieces together. And he makes some, uh, he shows some some stats about racial inequality in the criminal justice system. And then he asks a few questions at the end that I find uh, very interesting. I think we can help answer some. Can of I say something about that term, Max, if you don't mind, before we get to this sure, video? Sure. And. It's just, I, you know, I think a lot about a lot of different stuff. And, you know, a lot of people say words are important. They are important. But I'm starting to rethink, and I don't use these terms, but I see them becoming popular. Um, these terms and phrases, they become popular, like racial uh -huh. injustice. And I, I'm uh -huh. like, what's that? What's racial, what's racial injustice? You know, what, what is that really uh, uh, about? And I think that a lot of times people come up with these terms to avoid talking about slavery or they're ignorant of slavery. I mean, uh, if, if somebody could say, like, if we want racial equality, 
in the prisons, that could mean we want to see just as many white folk locked up as black folk on the prison plantation. That would be racial e- equality, would it not? Yeah, I see what I you're saying, Scott. Yeah. I agree. So, but you have to be walk on eggshells with uh, reading articles and titles and stuff like that because you're literally fighting against a huge propaganda machine. Yes, yes. And um, so... I'm sorry Facebook is running kind of, well, it's not Facebook, or it could be Facebook. I'm still waiting on it to load. Okay, here we go. Racial inequality in the criminal uh, justice system. And it should start up here any moment now. Okay, let me stop it and restart it. Here we go. The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail about half of 1%. Less than 1%. That doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than 1 in 100 Americans are currently in jail, but for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about 1 in 4. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic, as poor black communities lack so many of their members. But what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal. But there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself. In the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted, and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind. But people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates, and lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised? Despite noble intentions, Politics often does not affect the basic incentives of costs and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. 
We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo. There you have it. Uh, man, how can you hear that and not be affected and understand what is occurring here? They say one in 100 American citizens are spending time in prison. But if you go to young black men, it's one in four. <laughs> one in four versus one in 100. And then at the end, you said new radical thinking, right? <laughs> like it's preferable. It might be preferable. Some radical thinking. Uh, but what is radical thinking in this? Because it ain't reform. Reform is not radical thinking. We've been thinking reform since 1865. That's all we've been thinking about. The only option that is even offered to us in any of these forums that are seen by the global audiences and the American population uh, nationwide is primarily discussions on reform, whether or not. Not, you know, a third choice, just we either get some reform or we don't get no reform. And that's the end of your choices. But they, we're here every week to represent a third choice, and that third choice is abolition. Abolition is another option. You don't have to reform it. You can't fix a crime against humanity. You abolish it. Now, we're not talking about illegal things, because you can't abolish something that's already illegal. You fight that. We're talking about legalized slavery allowed through the 13th Amendment. We can abolish that. We can abolish private prisons from the United States of America. We can end these contracts with private industry. We can uh, end this... Uh, use of slave labor through prisons that are benefiting nothing but the huge conglomerates worldwide like Kentucky Fried Chicken and McDonald's. Um, we can end the for-profit bail system. We can end the for-profit probation system. We can rethink what we call punishment for crimes in this nation. We can do all of that. But it is an option other than reform. Anything? No, you, you nailed it. I think Scotty said to just debunk the mass incarceration without knowing that is what they're doing. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much that's what they're doing. They're, they're showing you. That's what, why I was saying before that anybody with half a mind can figure this out. But you got to break through the barriers of, of cogn the cognitive barriers that prevent you from even asking the question. I got to where I am today by asking questions. But I didn't just ask questions and walk away. I asked questions hoping to get answers. And along the way, I got answers. I found answers to a lot of the questions. And my quest personally began in 1995 with the death of a 16-year-old boy, uh, Lawrence Meyer, shot in the back of the head by police, white working police. And then that same policeman ended up being promoted and put into a position as a supervisor in a youth detention facility. It blew my freaking mind. I worked with the mayor. I worked with the sheriff. I did the marching. I did all the stuff that you're supposed to do as an activist. But I wanted to know how the hell this was going on and why. And that was in 95. Since then, I've gotten some answers. And I've also been... Uh, blessed to be able to offer everybody else a question they can ask so they could get answers too. And what's that question? Is this slavery? Is it slavery? Allowed by the 13th Amendment and practiced by private industry and state, local, and federal uh, entities as well. Is it slavery? If you can answer that question, you might be able to figure some of this stuff out. But without that foundation that, that cognitive foundation of understanding what it is you're really dealing with, as Sean uh, King said in Ohio, understanding what you're really dealing with, 
then you're just chasing shadows. You're telling us to fight things that, that, that are part of something else while you don't recognize the actual problem itself. So how can you offer solutions when you don't even know what the problem is? Well, the system is built on ignorance because so many people believe when you go to jail, you've done something worthy of being jailed, and they don't even get it that the system doesn't care about justice. The system needs slaves to make money. That's all it ends up being, to make money. There's no mystery about what's going on here. Even when judges can tell you that the law doesn't matter, they can find a workaround, and then you have a system of governance supposedly covering them, the Department of Justice, that turns a blind eye, it's might as well be racketeering. If you or I did it, it would be... It might as well. It is racketeering. When you've got corporations that are supposedly competing in a free market, but they come together to support legalized slavery to produce their product as cheap as possible, then what is it but racketeering? It's right. totally corrupt. That's why I was saying earlier uh, in 2008 or 2009, I believe is when, or actually 2007 is when the uh, Bush administration's participants were charged with racketeering. And that's been successful over the years, like charging these industries with racketeering charges, as we saw in Alabama with the for-profit probation company who was doing much of the same thing. They were threatening people on probation that if you don't pay our, uh, our costs, for this for-profit industry, then we're sending you to jail. It ain't got nothing to do with uh, your fines or your fees that came from the court. This is a separate entity saying, if you don't pay us because of our influence, we will put you in jail. And they ended up uh, having to vacate 115 cities in Alabama. And I'm wondering, what did they do to replace that service? I... I have a, I'm getting older now. I believe once you catch them, if you don't have a constant surveillance, they find a way to morph and come back as something brand new. Yeah, we have to be wary all the time, as Frederick Douglass said, that slavery has had many names and it will have more names. And we have to be vigilant to uh, see what new name this system is going to come out under next. But who, who puts these things into play um, is the question, right? Like, who is supporting this? If it is slavery, then who is the who are the people that put their policies and laws together that criminalize entire swaths of the U.S. public and turn them into products to be bought and sold on the open market, to be worked for free, and to literally be called state property uh, to own and to manage? Uh, a story that just came out of Texas from the Raw story is an example of that. And we keep giving you examples every week of these people who are in legislation, lawmakers who have the most sociopathic ideas of race and racism and uh, libertarianism and liberties and all these crazy ideas. But anyway, let me read a little bit about this. It comes from a Raw story and it says, a lawmaker in Brownsville, Texas, has apologized after he was caught on tape calling two district attorneys fucking niggers, pardon my language, while complaining about how they do their jobs. According to the Brownsville Herald, City Commissioner 
City Commissioner Caesar DeLeon, Democrat, it's not a Republican, it's a Democrat with these race, racist ideas, issued an apology earlier this week after social media users shared audio clips of him slurring the two attorneys. Uh, I'm not even going to read his apology. He, let's just say he apologized. What did he do? Here's what he said. The, there are a couple of effing angers that Louis Sen is getting, and I don't know where he is getting them from. DeLeon is heard saying, they are coming down to my effing city and now they're trying to effing put everybody in jail because they think we are a bunch of Mexicans that hit our wives, which couldn't be further from the effing truth. But that is how they see us. I would never dare use that word, but you know what? Yes, they are a couple of N-words in there that I think all of us are, that think all of us are effing taco eaters, DeLeon added. In response, D.A. Sands issued a statement the people of Cameron County expect me to hire the most competent prosecutors that I can find without regard to their race and that is what I strive to do Mr. DeLeon's remarks are very shameful and hurtful it is extremely disappointing that they are made by a lawyer and a representative of the city of Brownsville so first of all this dude apparently is Mexican white Mexican uh, from the looks of his photo there probably marks himself as white for all I know and he has this idea that these two uh, people that he was speaking of are I don't even want to say the word because it feels nasty on my, yeah. on my tongue but these are lawmakers who think of people like this and not just lawmakers but all across the spectrum governors, mayors, police chiefs, police uh captains and, and on and on and on people who have our lives in their hands firefighters who come out and say things like I would rather save a million dogs than one negro and he didn't say negro he said the other word the n word and we're talking about fire chiefs that, well I, I like I said I at 64 max and being born and raised right here in the south I'm a little bit like I think Scotty said I don't want to put words in his mouth I'd rather know. I'm I, Donald Trump being sworn in to me is one of the best things that's happened to this country as far as waking people up. This is the the good time for people to realize they're not a minority. The majority of white people voted for him with all of his warts out in the open. There was no mystery about what he represented. Sadly, they keep looking at it as though it's the person Trump. No, Trump is the per, 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 what do you call it? The personification of what's been lurking behind political correctness that's been forced on America since 1964 with the Civil Rights Act. People couldn't say in public what they were really thinking. Now that Trump is in office and a rich white guy can do it, everybody else feels empowered to do it. And I'm glad it's waking people up to, you need to stand up and fight because you're being trampled and hoodwinked and you're being enslaved. If you don't go to jail, your brother, your cousin, your neighbor, they're going to jail. And eventually that, that taking of rights is going to encroach on you. You can't get jobs because they're locking people up to do the jobs for free. That's why you can't 
That's why your kid is living with you at 28, 29 years old. That's why there's no summer jobs for teens like there were when you and I were kids. Because they found a way to get a captured audience and do it for free. That's right back to plantation life. And they don't care anymore about just the 14% of blacks that used to be on the plantation. It's about corporate greed. If you're poor and white, they can't afford to buy your way into a, your parents can find a rehab for you for $60,000 a year. Well, we'll put you to work for nothing and we'll let a corporation make what? $1.4 billion off of you and 200, 200 or 300 other people. You know, last week I mentioned the whole ideal philosophy that we keep hearing now. Where, And I said this at the Human Rights Convention Chronic too, to the people there. We keep hearing this narrative of, oh, they're treating us like black people. <clears throat> you should help us now, <laughs> you know? And I'm getting tired of that narrative. And yes, it is a lot of people that now are being infected because of corporate greed, but never forget the roots of this and the main people that have been cons consistently affected by it. And if the only reason that somebody wants to get up and act is because it finally reached their doorstep, then that person was wrong before they ever got up. From my perspective, slavery is slavery and it's wrong and you should go right to the roots of the problem and dealing with it but uh you know these people speaking on uh, like this as lawmakers like the michigan state police director who called the nfl kneelers degenerates they're the ones that craft the narrative of you know public narrative of what we think about these circumstances so half of the equation that you're talking about is yes it's good that they have popped up their heads Scotty, myself, and many other abolitionists agonized over how we could lose constructively during the 2016 election. How can we lose constructively? Because we couldn't win. There was no win for us. No, Donald Trump wasn't a win for us. Hillary Clinton certainly wasn't a win for us. So we came up with a plan and we enacted that plan. And that included what you see manifesting now, where the rest of the world gets to see how bad this is. They get to see all of these moles pop their heads up in a whack-a-mole contest. And we're not whacking anybody. I mean, they're popping their heads up left and right, but what are we doing about it? The state police director still got a job. The Texas lawmaker still got a job. The governor of Maine still got a job. We're not doing anything about this. So here they are presenting themselves for full review. And they didn't just become racist yesterday. They didn't just start doing these things yesterday. So they got a history you can look into and find out, okay, what harm have they had? What harmful effects have they had with their decision makings in this, uh, whether it be law enforcement or political structures? What, what have they done bad? Like we say all the times, we keep getting these cops who get arrested for these crimes and corruption, and nobody looks any further than that case alone. They don't go, well, you know what? This judge been on the bench for 30 years, and we just convicted him, and he got 28 years. Maybe we should look through his cases and see what people have been affected prior to us finding out that he was dirty. And we're not doing that. We need to start doing that. Otherwise, this whole term of uh, Donald Trump will have been for naught. They would have just exposed themselves proudly and go, look, you ain't doing nothing to me. You ain't going to do nothing to me. So that only inspires more to do the same thing. Oh, I agree 100%. Said that we know we have a history of slavery from the 13th Amendment. That's when black people were actually, other than the three-fifths, that's when we're most cited in the very constitution of this country. What That, bit, that model 
of extracting wealth from enslaving black people has become so lucrative mm-hmm. until it's starting to eat their own. <laughs> That's right. I'm I'm like Malcolm X with that. There's no way you can deal in that kind of greed and and excessive plundering of human life, no regard for humanity, and it not come back to haunt you. And that's why I say it they're they're purposely putting these factories out into middle of nowhere so the general population doesn't understand what you thought was just happening to those Negroes is actually happening to you along with the Negroes. It reminds me of that poem about, you know, first they came for those and then they, you know, nobody yes. said nothing and they came for the next one. And that's what we're looking at right now. You know what I mean? You, you should have been on point from the first they came for. That's where everything begins, you know, from I, there. I just told a Facebook friend, I'm not above playing the race card. Look, they're coming for you white folks too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not above it. I don't blame you, brother. I, I'll reverse it. I'll play the race card on you. Look how they're treating y'all. Even in our incarceration, we are not equal. Even in our incarceration. Oh, no. <laughs> One thing about it, I, I, I tell them all the time, I see Peter have more empathy for kittens and cats and dogs than they do for black human beings. So my empathy, as much as I love pets, my empathy doesn't go to try to save a dog or a cat when I see a human in the same situation. I'm going to try to save the human first, and then if the cat or dog is still there, I may go back. White folks will save the pet first and say, I couldn't get back to you. Sorry. Well, I see we got a few call, uh, people listening in on the uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network channel. And if you want to chime in, if you, you have a question or comment, just press star star to unmute yourself and you can participate. If uh, you're listening via the Black Talk Radio Network, New Abolitionist Radio, you can call us at 866-510-9025. Around 9.30, we'll be taking our next break and then going into our final segments for the evening. So uh, now's a good time to participate if you want to. And Max, so uh, we welcome questions and comments. Hey, Scotty? Um, yeah, some, I just wanted to um, chime in on something Otis said. And this is strictly about strategy. This ain't, this ain't to to minimize about, you know, the disproportionate rates that black people get locked up. But to what he said, and it's scientific, it's not racist what he said. It's not it's not trying to dehumanize whites. Okay. We do know there are we have very empathetic white people in the new abolitionist movement. Okay. So but in terms of propaganda, propaganda. Now I was looking at that video as I was playing it, and he showed that there are far more, actually more white people in prison than it is black people. Same thing when we talk about slave catchers murdering people. It's just that we are, as black people, are disproportionately. Now, when Otis says something that is backed up by science, that most white people are not empathetic to non-white people and particularly black people they rather save a puppy than a black person you know and if i don't know if you've ever been in a, a animal shelter but those things look far more you know better accommodations than some of these prisons 
you know, and, and, and they enforce them rules and whatnot. Um, but here's the thing in terms of propaganda. So if we know science says that they aren't empathetic towards black people. Why do we want to make black people the face of slavery? Is that counterintuitive? This is just a question I want to put out there. Should we not put those faces in front of them that they will be empathetic to? Just a question. But I, guess I started the program off by telling you the person who actually sent this to me is uh, she? She actually goes into Syria and and to Israel talking about what's happening in Palestine. So she's international. And I was in a dis discussion with her several months ago and brought this up. And I said. Americans have been sold a bill of goods that is just the, the thugs, quote, inner city blacks that are going to jail. What they don't realize is what I learned because I was doing hunt projects all down to Louisiana, and I say it again. I know we are 13 or 14% of the population. Sure, we go to, as, as you're saying, we go to jail in a higher proportion but when I realized what was going on with these chain gangs and going into small communities, I'm telling you, white people don't like seeing other white people locked up like niggas. They don't even have sympathy when they see illegals being locked up. Those are the people that deserve it. But one thing I've learned about them, the general population, they don't like seeing other white people mistreated. Do you and, this? And, and to bring it to the forefront like this article I'm going to end up putting this out every day because I understand how Facebook only puts like 10% of what you share goes to your friend so they might see this in my feed being posted like it's brand new for the next two weeks because mm -hmm. I want to make sure they see that's why I like to take the shots and pictures and put a, a collage there because I've already figured out some of them don't want to read the title but when they start seeing the title and they see that white face there and there's no black people in that article and they're still talking about going to indentured servitude, all of a sudden I start getting private messages. And these are people I've known all my life, went to high school with them. Where'd you get that? Read it. Well, I'm going to read it later. No, read it and then get back with me. See, people are lazy. They want to stay in their own security and their own beliefs. But like I said, you put that white face up there, and then tag it We're talking about working in chicken farm for, for free and it ain't no black faces all of a sudden I maybe I should read that maybe I should realize that the system doesn't care about me if I can't afford to pay to be free well for, for you I guess my answer for your question Scotty Reed is me I'm pretty simple minded and one track minded you know what I mean um and I try to remain focused on what I'm trying to achieve. And uh, I have been told before to appeal to people's sense of economics. Mm -hmm. I've been told before to appeal to their sense of self-preservation, mm -hmm. to their uh, community, that specific type of community, like the conversation I just had with basically 99% white people in Ohio, white students in Ohio. Mm-hmm. But I just tell everybody the same story, man. Whether it's grammar school kids, congressmen, uh, a white group, a black group, uh, if aliens came down today and said, Max Parthas, could you please explain slavery to us? I would tell them the same things I tell those other groups. I don't change my story. I keep it the same right. way. 
for everybody. Yeah, I'm and, talking about those targeted propaganda. For example, during the current this current period of pushback against um, people taking the knee for for justice, you know, uh, Kaepernick specifically pointed out slave catcher brutality against black people, but. For example, I wrote an article about a year and a half ago, like they keep talking about the veterans. Oh, you're disrespecting the veterans and blah, blah, blah. And a I million point of them out, are in prison. Yeah, I point out to people, there's about 800,000 veterans in prison right now. And they're a considerable part of the homeless population. Uh, the homeless population. So I'm, I, what I'm saying is, I'm what I'm saying is, is that I think we had to become more savvy um in in fighting the propaganda war. I mean that's just big part part of the war. And yes. yeah, so that that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I agree with you, Scotty, and I think that people should do that who are able to do that. Me, like I said, I'm just right, kind of right. simple minded with well, my I I stay on the you you made me hold my message for abolition and all I'm saying to you is while I was talking to him about abolition, you can almost see it in their eyes that it's just the black people. You're black and you're telling me about black mm-hmm. people. I'm telling you, I learned from being in the Air Force. I learned from doing HUD projects. I even was in the, in the health care business. Once they find out it's not what they thought it was, and it's their cousin, their brother, their sister, or their empathy. They have, white people have empathy for other white people. That's why when you see a, a story about somebody that got injured or just like the shooting here in Las Vegas. Do you realize there's over four or five million dollars been donated to them? Four, four or five million. The sheriff's department started a GoFundMe page. In less than 48 hours, over four million dollars has been donated. White people have more money in this country. When they get in the fight, we'll have more money. <laughs> because they're willing to, when they find out you're doing for them too, they're less likely to turn away. And I'm with Scotty on that. I'm I've had recent, nothing but white folks. I've had recent interactions where I was required to do things like that. Uh, I had to meet with a fusion party of the Green Party and the Democrats where they got together, and their mission for me through our revolution was to do, explain to them how uh, immigration laws and current immigration circumstances apply to modern-day slavery and human trafficking. So basically, I broke down how these immigrants are being turned into slaves. And and I went through the whole research for them in order to appeal to this segment. And then there was another uh, incident where I went through the same thing with the labor union. And I had to explain to the labor union how, uh, you know, prison slave labor is like your biggest enemy. It's the biggest problem that you may be facing is your jobs being lost to these non-union, non-rights having, no benefits having prisoners who are doing the same exact jobs that you could be doing outside for a respectable wage. And I've done those things, but I always walk away feeling like a politician with a bad taste in my mouth. I should simply just have to say it's slavery. Right. Is that enough? Is right. that it's, enough? It's but, slavery, but you, but you got to talk to them in their language. Like man. one of these things here is right here in this article. The courts still send defendants to care. And the program is expanding. Guess what? Simmons Food even donated funds to build a third dormitory to house dozen more. And the lady said that we're talking about from that article said, I was walking in the parking lot of Simmons plant and the chairman, Mark Simmons, told me he needed more men. 
Wilkerson told a local reporter at a ribbon-cutting ceremony in 2015. I told him, build me another dorm. So guess what? CARE is now planning a fourth dormitory, and it's supposed to be the biggest. If you show this to labor, it's right there. It's from a bona fide. <laughs> Give me the email address. I'll send it to them. It's right in there in the article research. Right huh? There's people yeah. in the labor movement listening right now. They're regular listeners. So they're well, hearing right now they, what you're talking they about. Can, it's on my post. I snapshot them, and I tell you, that's another thing I learned. People want to use Facebook for cats and dogs, and I'm telling you, I get I used to get ribbed all the time because all I do is politics and this. You said a quote that basically did, from the article says that the company reached out to the prison and said, we need more people, to the to the to the uh, Justice Department said we need more employees. Exactly, and, exactly. And that's the same exact thing that they did during convict leasing. Whenever yes. they needed more workers, they would just go arrest some. Go and they got them from the black community. Precisely. That's what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Nothing. The, the tools haven't changed. Technology has just made it more efficient. The same modus operandi. Exactly, exactly. Well, we're at the 9.30 mark, so let's take our last break, and then when we come back, we'll get into our final segments for the evening. And uh, with that said, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. Tonight, you've got uh, Scotty Reed, myself, Max Parthas, and Otis in the house talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Why? Because somebody got to do it. It might as well be us. We're right back. Podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, just want to point out something else as well. I said I'd try and share a little bit of my history. I don't have enough time for it this week, but I will give you a quick summation. I shared a video on our Facebook page for New Abolitionist Radio. It's me doing a performance called Born Free in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, Rhode Island is like a second home to me. Uh, I'm very proud of the people there and the place itself. Uh, for those who don't know, it's the only state in the Union that actually has no caveat for slavery. It simply says slavery shall be abolished in Rhode Island. Just, just actually two words, slavery abolished. <laughs> so it, it has no caveat like two dozen other states have in it. And it was a bastion of abolition. And uh, back in 2010, I came and uh, performed there, and the video of me performing there is available for you to see. But it was during a period where we were organizing a nationwide rally against mass incarceration and uh, prison slavery and those things. I talked in detail about what we were trying to achieve, and we did achieve it. We had 26 states involved. We went down to the prisons and the jails, and we turned them into protests. Uh, spots just for that day simultaneously all across America. Even other countries were involved and what they did were they hung shoes out their windows in support of what we were doing. It was very much like the March uh, the August 19th event that we had at that time. I wasn't really at that point in 2010 focusing on the 13th Amendment. I was aware of it but I was still learning at that point. 
But you'll see in this video, when we talk about all these things that we're doing today and predicting a lot of the things that have occurred since. This was prior, as a matter of fact, that uh, event that we put together was prior to the Occupy movement. And I've said before that I think that the Occupy movement kind of took that idea and ran with it, but used it for something else, co-opted it. Much like you saw what happened with the August 19th event, where all of these suddenly uh, white racist supremacists had these rallies all over America. And then the next day, August 20th, they canceled them. 36, I believe, of the events were canceled. You didn't see any more events after that. In any case, uh, it's an interesting uh, peep into my history regarding the abolitionist movement, and this goes back to 2010. You'd be like, damn, that could be something Max said today. I, I remain pretty consistent in what I've been doing, and, and it's, it was a beautiful thing to see the manifestation of all of those efforts collectively that we have had come together on August 19th, because I literally dreamed of that day, and I talk about that dream in this video. There, there you have it. You bring that up, Max. I have an ex-Air Force buddy, a good friend of mine that's actually from Providence. I went up a couple of years ago to see him. But I was going to also say, when you say that people cancel that thing, what we don't understand when we're battling to, for survival, one of the things I've learned about looking at the other race, quote, white people, they have wealth. Wealth is a community commodity, and uh, there's a gentleman, Irame Oso Frenfog, that does works with uh, Yvette Cornell, and he says it all the time, and it makes perfect sense. What we don't get as a struggling minority that wealth is a community thing. That's one of the reasons those 39 uh, planned uh, protests disappeared. We don't know for sure, but we can tell from just the article we put up today. When you look at some, the, the whole thing that sprung from this article, a convicted meth dealer named Raymond Jones walked into this lady's office in 2003 with the story and a proposal on how to put this network together. He supposedly had just recovered from being a meth addict. He wanted to start a, a rehab place. She was working for the chicken people and she helped fund him at $250,000 a year and then took over his rehab and turned it into slavery for fucking chickens. For chickens. That is, wealth does that. Those people, when you say that those 36, we don't know who planned them, but what you do know is once they saw that you didn't get the million people, that might be why there were no more protest plans. These Bad people are college graduates. I've seen it. I was in the military with people like that. That they know each other and you don't know they know each other until they take you in the fold and you find out second or third cousins, but they've been in touch with each other because one was from California, the other one was from New Hampshire, but they're third and fourth generation. Wealth gives you that stability that family stays connected. Just like the shooter that says $100,000 that his, his uh, brother sent to his girlfriend, said that was nothing. The man gambled $100,000. That's what wealth does. So they, yes. they operate different than we do. And it's not to be prejudiced. It's just a fact of being in a capitalist society. That's how it works. How? Why would you think that they, that those planned marches just stop? 
there's a reason. Whoever funded it didn't see any need for it anymore. Yes, sir. Well, we can talk about the biggest thing and how deep that goes. Uh, and I have been talking about it. Follow me on Max Parthas on Facebook, and you'll see some of the conversations we've had about that Vegas uh, circumstance. So, all right. Well, we got to do these last segments. Uh, Otis, would you like to do, uh, for instance, the? Wait a minute. I don't. I'm not on that page. All right. Where is um, where, where, where's, where's the article? Um, I'll go. I'll. Put it on. I, I just put on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook the rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. So if you want to uh, try to do a quick reading of that, that would be helpful. And then I'll do our abolitionist in profile and our um, okay, our rebellion and remembrance. My computer slowed down. I had to load it up so long. Well, you know what? While you pull that up. I'll go ahead and do the abolitionist in profile, and that'll give you time to pull up the rider of the 21st century underground railroad. Okay. Um, what we do every week, we share an abolitionist, some contemporary, and but most of them from the past. And this particular one, our abolitionist in profile for October 4th, 2017, is Mumbet, a.k.a. Elizabeth Freeman. Uh, there's a photo we have available, and the credit is pub- public domain. In 1781, as the American Revolution raged, a Massachusetts slave named Bet approached abolition lawyer Theodore Segwick and asked him to help her sue for her freedom. Bet had endured mistreatment at the hands of her master's wife, including a blow from a hot kitchen shovel that left her with a burn on her arm, and she was determined to never return to their house again. To back up her case for emancipation, she cited a surprising source, Massachusetts newly inked constitution which included a passage stating that all the state's residents were born free and equal. Segwick took the case and later argued in county court that Massachusetts Constitution nullified any previous laws supporting slavery in a landmark decision. The jury agreed and awarded Bet her freedom as well as 30 shillings in damages. So she got her freedom and damages. It was one of the first times that a slave successfully, an enslaved person successfully won emancipation in court. And along with another case involving a man named Quack Walker, it helped set a precedent that saw Massachusetts abolish slavery in 1783. Having struck a major blow for the abolitionist cause, Bet went to, on to work as a paid domestic servant in Segwick's home. She also adopted a name that reflected her new status as a free citizen. Elizabeth Freeman. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Elizabeth Freeman. Salute. Man, I got Freemans and Frees in my family. Before I know we could be related to her. You know what I mean? Shout out to my past uncle Bill Free out in Patterson, New Jersey and the Free family. Yeah, there's Free and Freeman in my family. A lot of people took that name because it was what they felt. Free after the emancipation. Unfortunately, they didn't understand the bamboozle that was occurring to them. The shuffle. Alright, there you have our abolitionist in profile and Otis, do you have the rider available yet? I don't have the rider. I sent Scotty a message, but while I don't know if he can bring it up, but I'll tell you what I do have that might be... Yeah, I'm going to try Otis. Uh, Otis um, um, is saying that Washington... The article is on Washington Post and they uh, only give uh, you so many free views and apparently he reached <laughs> okay. his limit. So let me see All if right. I can pull it up and, and I'll do it. 
so that you could then handle um, the next one. So let me pull. Well, I tell you what, I can give you a two-minute submission of one. Okay, that's I got it. Just as good. Well, okay. This brother just got out September nineteenth, so let's give him a shout out and and welcome to freedom. Yes, not let okay. me. Uh, they want me to give him ten dollars. Right. So. I have it up, so I'll read it, and then I guess you could do the rebellion. Then <laughs> it's all right, brothers and sisters listening oh, in. Right. This is how we do it live radio, man. Uh, so yeah, the rebellion is John Brown is on the planet page, and I'll since I, I'm able to open this Washington Post thing, I'll read it. The uh, this is our rider, yeah. rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, and uh, it's from the Washington Post. As they said, Baltimore man exonerated on murder charge, freed from prison after 13 years by Drew Gerber. After 13 years in prison for first-degree murder, Baltimore man walked free Tuesday afternoon as the Baltimore State Attorney Office joined his defense team in asking for his exoneration. State Attorney Marilyn Mosby formally apologized at a news conference to Lamar Johnson and his family for what her office now believes was his wrongful conviction. The Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, which investigates suspected wrongful convictions, began looking into Johnson's case in 2010. Last year, the project presented its findings to the state's attorney's conviction integrity unit, the first of its kind in Maryland, which, after its own investigation, agreed that Johnson was innocent. The public must know that justice is the only barometer of success, Mosby said. Johnson, 34, was sentenced to life in prison in 2006 for the fatal shooting of 30-year-old Carlos Sawyer in March of 2004. Johnson first became a suspect after police, a police informant provided a nickname of a possible shooter, and Johnson was mistakenly identified as using the same nickname, officials said. In its review, the state attorney's office concluded that eyewitness testimony during the trial was flawed and that the two witnesses who identified Johnson as the gunman had said that he merely looked similar to the shooter. Mosby said another witness testified that another person, not Johnson, had fought with the victim minutes before his death according to the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. During the course of its six-year investigation, the organization faced many challenges in building Johnson's case, said Parisa Degani Tati, the project's legal director. Apart from trouble with finding witnesses and reality that memories had faded, the team struggled to overcome people's fear about cooperating in investigations, Degani Tati said. The hardest thing was getting witnesses to talk, she said. It took an extraordinary amount of courage to speak up about a crime and maybe even more to speak up 10 years later. Members of Sawyer's family have long been convinced that Johnson was innocent, but Mosby said Johnson's release was a bittersweet moment. They now must face the unsettling reality that Carlos's attacker has not been yet brought to justice, she said. Surrounded by family members of the, at the news conference, Johnson described the frustration and despair he experienced in prison. But he said that with therapy and his family support, he hoped to put the past 13 years behind him. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Brother Johnson. Welcome to freedom. Salute. Salute, man. And here we were just talking about earlier where they're taking away visitation rights. Imagine being innocent. 13 years in prison, you can't even see your family. Your mom, brother, sister, daughters, sons. 
the things we do to each other in this in this nation in the name of justice. I mean, and I mean, just that very fact, though, Max, and this is something particularly true with our political prisoners. I mean, they'll put them on the other side of the country just so they can't get no visitation. But you, I mean, but that right there is just one of the many signs that this isn't about rehabilitation. This isn't about correction. This is about slavery. Why would you isolate your victims away from their loved ones, away from their community, you know, and take them away from any kind of of, of, um, um, emotional support? So, I mean, it's just another sign, man. It's a part of the classic case of abuse, domestic abuse. To dehumanize them, exactly. And with political prisoners... To, if you let them back out, you have the possibility of them rejuvenating the same movement. Right. The only way to be sure is to completely isolate them. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that is our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. Uh, and next coming up will be our history in rebellion. Uh, and this week it's going to be John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. And I've brought that one out because the date of its anniversary is coming up on October 16th. Uh, It began in 1859 and we speak of John Brown and his efforts here uh, often. Particularly since I seem to be following some kind of shadow of his at the moment. You know what I mean? Uh, I think I've mentioned some of it before but uh, some friends of ours have actually bought a home in Ohio that was owned by John Brown's family. Uh, It was just recently in the newspaper about their purchase. It was a plant and uh, they used it as part of the Underground Railroad, and apparently they want us to come out there and to live and work from Ohio as abolitionists. All right, so... It's uh, a great John, opportunity. Yes. I mean, All right, Scotty Reed? Yes, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Abolitionist John Brown led a small group on a raid against a federal armory in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, now West Virginia, in an attempt to start an armed victim of slavery revolt and destroy the institution of slavery. Born in Connecticut in 1800 and raised in Ohio, Brown came from a staunchly Calvinist and anti-slavery family. He spent much of his life failing at a variety of businesses. He declared bankruptcy at age 42 and had more than 20 lawsuits filed against him in 1837. His life changed irrevocably. I'm sorry, <laughs> when he attended an abolitionist meeting in Cleveland, during which he was so moved that he publicly announced his dedication to destroying the institution of slavery. Why? Wow, I didn't know that. All it took was one meeting. That's it. Yes. As yes. early as 1848, he was formulating a plan to incite an insurrection. In the 1850s, Brown traveled to Kansas with five of his sons to fight against the pro-slavery forces in the contest over the territory. On May 21st, 1856, pro-slavery men raided the abolitionist town of Lawrence and Brown personally sought revenge. On May 25th, Brown and his sons attacked three cabins along Potawatomi Creek. They killed five men with broadswords. I put them through their backs, boy, and triggered a summer of guerrilla warfare in the troubled territory. 
One of Brown's sons was killed in the fighting. By 1857, Brown returned to the East and began raising money to carry out his vision of a mass uprising of the victims of slavery. He secured the backing of six prominent abolitionists known as the Secret Six and assembled an invasion force. His army grew to include, and armies in quotations, army grew to include 22 men, including five black men and three of Brown's sons. The group rented a Maryland farm near Harper's Ferry and prepared for the assault. On the night of October the 16th, 1859, Brown and his band overran the arsenal. Some of his men rounded up a handful of hostages, including a few uh, victims of slavery. Word of the raid spread, and by morning, Brown and his men were surrounded. A company of U.S. Marines arrived in October 17, led by Colonel Robert E. Lee and Lieutenant Jeb Stewart, J.E.B. Stewart. On the morning of October the 19th, the soldiers overran Brown and his followers. Ten of his men were killed, including two of his sons. The wounded Brown was tried by the state of Virginia for treason and murder, and he was found guilty on November the 2nd. The the 59-year-old abolitionist went to the gallows on December the 2nd, 1859. Before his execution, he handed his guard a slip of paper that read, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood. It was a prophetic statement, although the raid failed, it inflamed sectional tensions and raised the stakes for the 1860 presidential election. Brown's raid helped make and further help make any further accommodation between North and South nearly impossible and thus became an important impetus of the Civil War. In New Abolitionist Radio, Salutes John Brown and his small band of abolitionists and their raid on Harper's Ferry. Salute. Salute. Remembering these things, man. It's important that we keep these events, people alive in our memories because their fight is our fight. Indeed it is. And just today, Max, I was talking about as people, uh, a question was asked by one of the listeners on Tando Radio Show about another guy saying we're headed towards a civil war. And I say, bring it on. How long have I been saying on this program that we may just take another civil war in order for us to end slavery? You know, and and no, nobody wants to see that kind of destruction, that kind of death. But sometimes that's the price you got to pay for freedom. And and, and and John Brown, what he said then is probably still true. And see, this also what makes Lincoln's betrayal just so, so heinous, man. You know, all of that blood of those abolitionists, all of that blood they shed, gave their lives. People like John Brown, you know, and then you're going to agree with some Confederates to put the exception clause in the 13th Amendment, and now we got to deal with that today. Well, it's, it's rotten at its core and its inception. And, and I like to use my last words telling you, I tried to send it to Max. Here's an article today. One of the people I've been back and forth with over the last year is a guy named Nathan Robinson. Hey, be he mindful, we only have a couple minutes left. Just to right, let you know. I'm just going to get it in real fast. There's an article. There's never a way to make it right. It's about a guy named John Thompson. His death is a reminder of how cruel the criminal justice system is. That man died yesterday at 55 years old. 
18 years of his 55 years was spent in Louisiana prison on death row. And to make it in short, the prosecution kept 10 pieces of evidence that could have set him free. And he spent 18 years of his life on death row. I'll put, I, matter of fact, I did put it up on New Abolition so people can go and read it. The, the stain of slavery and the 13th is killing people and it's destroying lives. Yes, sir. If you really want to know as much as you can possibly know, that'll bring you into a better perspective on this week's promotional uh, photo of Scotty and myself in front of the White House on August uh, 19th during that event there. I have a list of suggested films, books, and video series that you can look at yourself. Take the time and review these things over time. You know, It took me some time, and it'll take you some time, too. But at least start. Take a look at those things. They're highly suggested by us. Films would include Slavery by Another Name, 13th, and Do Not Resist. The books are Instance in the Life of a Slave Girl, Narrative of the Life of, a, of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, and also Who Freed the Slaves, the Fight Over the 13th Amendment, which is uh, very intriguing, and it tells you what happened with Lincoln. And then finally, One Dies, Get Another, Convict Leasing in the American South, 1866 to 1928, by Jay Mancini. And our suggested videos that I put out would be Time, the Cleef Browder Story, The House I Live In, Brave New Films documentary Immigrants for Sale and They Call Us Monsters. Check those out. Scotty Reed, you want to, uh, any last comments for the evening? You or Otis? Well, the article I was telling you about with, with uh, Mr. Thompson, the prosecutor was the father of Harry Connick Jr., a legendary prosecutor in Louisiana. So these rich people, their kids are going off to fame and fortune and they're still wreaking havoc on our community with slavery. The 13th is insidious. Insidious. Thanks again for participating with me and, and helping us out this week, uh, Otis. Always, always, brother. We appreciate your, your insight and your, your, your perspective that you bring to the table. Thank you so much, brother, especially for that story tonight. Scotty, yeah, read any last comments for Yeah, you? Otis, uh, I just made you a editor on New Abolitionist. Uh, radio's page because uh, we want them to sh what you post to show up on the front page and, and you are very good at what you do in, in pulling this information so uh, I, I've been inspired by y'all Scotty I tell you I want to get down and spend some time with you I got to sharpen up my skills on this computer so I can uh, be more efficient at this I appreciate Scotty, the honor that okay. might be the person you've been looking for in regards to learning how to manage the uh, program give you some free time yeah. Indeed. Well, you guys might be working out. Yeah. So I just want to just uh, thank you and Max. Um, I just haven't been feeling well lately. It, you know, not physically, but mentally. Um, you know, just battle weary sometimes. And and so I uh, just really thank you guys for picking up the slack. And I just want to give a shout out to all the abolitionists out there. Uh, when I hear these articles and see these new articles coming out that's mentioning the 13th Amendment and that slavery was never abolished, I know that's because of us as a collective. So thank you all. Yes, sir. Uh, we got about 60 seconds, so I'll just say this real quick. Every day I wake up in a world where it's necessary to convince people to end legalized slavery, but not before you first have to show them how it exists, because contrary to all the evidence, reports, testimony, and explanations, they can't freaking see it. 
Any of today's modern slavery abolitionists have a small inkling of how Harriet Tubman felt, knowing she simply could not convince the enslaved that they were slaves. They were chains with the same pride that they would wear gold links. They bragged about who had the better master. They even fought tooth and nail against anyone who set them free or defamed their owner's character. Broken mind, body, and soul. No wonder Frederick Douglass said it was easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. Their counterparts were no less broken. They actually believed themselves right and righteous. A lot of folks need an exorcist and a psychologist before they meet an abolitionist. But we here, most of all, remember this. Abolition is a reason for revolution. So we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, rise up, rise up. Just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up.